some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. I am really glad to be speaking with our, our friend, Mike Howard. Mike and I go back a few years, back when I was editing a podcast published by the fellow by the name of Ben Greenfield. He's really well known in the health and fitness, wellness, spirituality space. And uh, he just, I, I think Mike just heard of me through kind of word of mouth advertising or networking of some sort. And he and I have stayed in touch. And I sent out an email to my list, which by the way, you should be on if you're listening to this show. Go to jamesdnewcomb.com and you can subscribe to the email list, which I send every day. But I sent an email, and it had to do with sales, marketing, persuasion, and the core of the email was the six psychological triggers that make person want to buy from you and only you, I think was the title of the email. And Mike has been pretty well versed in things of this nature, and it turns out that he's actually worked with pretty well-known people in sales and marketing, notably Tony Robbins, among others. And so Mike wanted to talk a little bit about what I had written on that email. And I said, man, let's just talk about it, you and me, get our voices and share our thoughts on a podcast and other people can partake of what is on our minds. So here we are. It's great to have you, man. Hey, James, super great to see you, man. Hope all is well with you and your family and it is. all the things, all the projects you're working on. And now that we're well beyond the COVID era, we can move forward with our lives. You and I met in the heyday of COVID, didn't we? I think it was right around that time, yeah. And so the world was completely backwards? Yeah, it certainly took us for a loop. Regardless of what your belief systems are around the subject, we talk about this particular email that you sent out, which was in regards to influence and influence skills. And I think one of the most critical things for us as human beings is to really, really learn how to influence ourselves so that we can do what we need to do to live in a changed world and be successful in a changed world. Zoom right here is an example of that. Zoom was a pretty strong application and platform prior to COVID, but let's face it, it just, it zoomed. <laughs> it, it truly zoomed and it became, for instance, you know, my wife had a, has a job and she's been working for a company that said for years they would never let their workers work from home. And uh, three years ago, March of 2020, they sent her home and they figured out a way to get the bandwidth and they figured out a way to be safe and secure. And here it is 40 months later, 
and they don't need her to come back. They want her to work from home. They made changes with their leases and they downsized their their commercial buildings and they're letting a lot of people work from home. Say that, never say never. Those folks that were making the policies, they were influential in their own right, weren't they? The Fauci's sure. and the politicians who were trying to persuade us to adopt a certain way of life that was radically different from what humanity has known throughout its entire history and questionable as far as its efficacy of spreading any viruses. The interesting thing that I find is you talk about the influence skills or the triggers that Robert Cialdini made famous in his book, An Influence. And if you see some of the folks that were, quote unquote, efforting the influence of where America should go when it comes to how to handle COVID, the vaccines, et cetera, they may not have used some of those skills too well. They didn't use them as well as if, if they did use them very well, they might have got a lot less resistance because there was a significant amount of resistance for sure. But yeah, influence, it's around us every day. We live in it, whether we like it or not, at some level, we are all salespeople. We are, if we're Want to get, if we want to get a result and we need someone else to help us get that result, if we are then have to sell them our ideas and we have to come up with some level of influence, the question is ethical influence is really what we're looking to do is how do we help people make decisions that will not only help us, but help them at the same time. And that's, I think, was what Giulini has been teaching for many years. This classic book, this is the new and expanded version. It's called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And they actually added it. He actually added a seventh uh, trigger. It's called Unity. Uh, and it's something that you could probably relate to having served in the military for the U.S. and also being a musician. You have a unity towards certain groups of people. And if you run into an ex-military guy, you probably have a little bit more rapport with that person than you would if it was somebody that didn't have that. Or if you run into a someone who plays trumpet, I'm sure you'd have a lot of unity with that yes. person. So, Camaraderie yeah. and community, yeah. Yeah, rapport. for sure. Yeah, okay. All right, so we have mentioned Robert Cialdini, and actually how I came across those six psychological triggers, which we'll get into in just a minute, I I didn't actually hear it from Cialdini. I heard it from a guy named Mark Hendricks. Okay. Who's, who's, so basically I heard a copy of a copy, probably a copy of a Xerox. <laughs> but you know how how, the, how these things go. Some, of course. One, one person says something and that there's nothing new under the sun. And what Cialdini said is probably something that other sales experts have been saying in one form or another. He just codified it in a certain way. And this Mark Hendricks fellow repeated what he said. So that's where I got sure. it. Yeah. I'm not familiar with Mark. I do know that Cialdini Institute, you know, they, it's scientifically proven. That's the key to this is it's not just some mumbo jumbo, psychobabble, personal development stuff. And trust me, I'm a personal development guy. I'm, I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying that's what some of the elite intellects from the ivory towers will call a lot of material that I'm a proponent of. But the Trudini material has been tested, scientifically tested and proven with experiments. And it's fascinating. The book itself is fascinating. And I recently got involved with the Institute because they were 
they, they were certifying people. And since I had so much of a background and it really wasn't all that difficult to get certified with the Trudini Institute, which is just another, another arrow in my quiver, if you will, in terms of helping people get results, which is what I've been doing now for 35, 40 years. Nice, man. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I grew up in the in the second largest city in New England. I ended up getting into uh, what you would call the blue collar world, working in wiring cable. Knew I was not destined for that. So I found a white collar job, if you will, with a computer company. And I had a 10-year career in learning about integrated circuits. And I was around PCs and computers before the curve. 1980 was when I started with that company. And I was actually sending out emails to in-house people all over the country back in the early 80s. But that was my fundamental ground of developing as into a leader slash manager. And in 1990, after a 10-year career, I went to work with Tony Robbins. He was offering franchises across North America, training franchises. And we, you purchased your territory and you set up shop and you went out and woke up every day unemployed until you found customers. And, and then, then you built, then you ran your programs, you facilitated training that was authorized by Tony. As a matter of fact, there were multimedia video programs back in those days. It was, we used VCRs. We didn't have anything virtual on the internet at the time. The internet was really existed in 1990. Let's face it, AOL just really started coming into its own around 1990. If you think about it, and that was dial-up. We had dial-up. And so I, I did that for 10 years, and that really cut my teeth in the world of platform speaking and getting out in front of groups and training people and that. And since, since then, I've been at it in different marketplaces. And lately, I've been more involved with the health and wellness world. I find myself very interested in longevity as I, as I approach my mid, I am in my mid sixties now. So I am very interested in longevity and, and how to have wellness uh, in my later life because just had a grandson and it's exciting. And I want to be able to attend this person's his graduations and things like that. It's, it's going to be a while. He just was born eight weeks ago. So <laughs> he's brand new to the world. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you, sir. All right. Let's talk about these psychological triggers. And I have them right in front of me, and I don't really have a set agenda with our discussion, but I'm just, I just want to read them, and maybe we can discuss yeah. them a little bit. And yeah, we could dig in a little bit for each topic. Sure. Okay, the six are expert authority, likability, commitment, and consistency. That's actually one bullet is commitment, Correct. consistency, reciprocation, social proof, scarcity. And then, as Mike said, we'll add unity, camaraderie, rapport, et cetera. Give us your thoughts on expert authority. Authority is funny because when I worked in the sales industry, when I would go out and I would offer my sales training program to companies that have sales teams, let's say I'm working out of a particular city and there's a lot of auto dealers, there's a lot of insurance companies. There's, oh gosh, alarm companies, you name it, anyone that has a sales force. And those sales forces, whether they're seven or eight people or 20 or 25 or 50 for that matter, depending on the size of the division of that company, they have a manager, sales manager, and that person is you know, usually promoted because they did the job well and they're good at managing people. And they have weekly meetings. 
And the funny thing about it is because people, sales reps, get used to their bosses start to become a broken record and they need to spice things up. And so one of the neat things about being a quote unquote sales training expert was you had the opportunity to come in and do a dog and pony. And they would allow you to do that because they have weekly meetings all the time and they're always looking for material. So the sales manager has no problem having you come in and do a 50, 15 to 30 minute, maybe a half hour, maybe an hour long a presentation on some sales techniques with the opportunity for you to sell at the end of the at the end of the session to provide I'm doing a program, a public seminar. Your boss is willing to spend, he'll invest 200 bucks. If you put in the other 200, you can come to my class. All right. And what's the funny thing about it is that I'm a stranger. They don't know me. They might know who I represent, but they don't know me. But I'm a stranger basically from out of town with a briefcase. And I'm an expert. I'm an authority. And you're an authority in podcasting. You're an authority in trumpet playing. So people have a tendency to listen to somebody more if that person has a perceived authority about something. And it's typically somebody that they may not know. They may not know. Do you? Really, I don't know how many family members you have, brothers and sisters, but I had seven. And I can remember I'm sixth of eight. So, you know, how many of my brothers and sisters listen to me? Little Michael, right? None. Exactly. Because, But even though I went and I became an expert in sales and marketing, and I learned a lot of things, my, my siblings were 10 years older than me. They're never going to really look at me unless they have a completely open mind. And most people don't do that. So people have a tendency to listen to authority. Let's give a real life example. You said the name earlier, Dr. Fochi. An authority on 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 what he's he's been around forty something years, and for some reason he's been able to be perceived as an authority on 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 vaccines and on on viruses, and that's where people a lot of people followed his guidance because he was a supposed authority. So that would be a recap on authority. perceived authority. Yeah, absolutely perceived authority. You can be, you can have the credentials, but you don't have to if you're good at, you know, putting up a facade. And that's the difference between ethical influence and people who play the game. Let's face it. Tony used to say this all the time. The same tools and skills that Martin Luther King used to motivate people were used by Jim Jones in Jones in Jonestown, all right? The same exact skills. It's not manipulation that's evil. It's the intent of the manipulation. And so what is your intent? The word manipulate has a, it has a really, wow, oh, yeah, I manipulated you. Oh, all manipulation means it's like manual dexterity. You're manually doing something. And it's the intent of the manipulation that matters. And that's a big part of making a sale is you are, and persuasion. And I'd like to get your thoughts on this because when I'm just, for example, if I'm talking to someone who's thinking about doing a podcast and they want to hire me or they're thinking of hiring me, we're having a meeting. I am in a way I'm manipulating the conversation to go in a way that is going to end in my favor, meaning they're going to say, okay, I'm ready to do this. We want to move forward with you. And where do I sign? So I don't know exactly how to put this, but I'm navigating or I'm trying to guide the conversation to go a certain way. 
And it's not like I'm lying and I'm not being dishonest, but I'm just very gently nudging them in the direction that I go, that I want them to go. But at the same time, I'm also, in a way, trying to dissuade them from doing it. If they're doing it for the wrong reasons, if they're not, if they don't want to do a podcast for a good reason, meaning it's going to last a long time, then I don't have any interest in that because they're going to start, I might get a startup fee, but then they're going to flame out in two months. And that's not a good use of my time. It's a complex way of thinking of it. But what I'm getting at is that I am intentionally guiding that discussion in a way that's going to have a favorable outcome for myself as well as the person. That's the only natural. What you're actually walking into right now is commitment and consistency. You're walking into that that law of persuasion because what you said is you don't want to influence somebody to haphazardly or half-baked go into something. There has to be a certain level of commitment and consistency. And commitment and consistency is simply a way for an influencer to starting with very simple things like uh, your name is James, yeah? And you say, yes, James Newcomb, yes. And you live on 55 Mulberry Lane, yes. Okay, that's like a simplistic example of commitment and consistency. But if you look at, they did studies with people, they would go to people's homes and study. It's in the book too. The Cialdini book is fascinating. And they, and the fact that they re, they rewrote it many years later, it's just, it's a true classic. You've got your... You know, Think and Grow Rich and books such as that and Dale Carnegie's Win Friends and Influence People. This book deserves to be on the same shelf as books like that. And they did it. They did a study with people in a neighborhood, in a pretty well-to-do neighborhood. And what they did was that the, these people are, I guess you call them investigators or whatever, and they go to the knock on the door and they'd be dressed like in khakis and shirts and they pretend that they were a particular group and they would have these placards and the placards would say, we believe in, uh, in the, it had to do with the green the green initiative because in California years ago, and we believe, we believe in clean air and all this good stuff. And they would go to the people and they would ask them if they would put a placard on their front door. You know, the glass of their front door or something. And they would get a certain percentage of people that would do that. And then they went to a group of people and they said, We'd like to put a billboard, a bill, a billboard, all right, in your front yard. And they would say, Oh no, no way. But then they would come back and they would those same people that said no thank you for the for the billboard, they would visit them a second time and they would say, Would you like to put a placard up now? And the percentage of people that agreed went up astronomically because they already said no. And now they're saying yes to this other thing. And then they went back to the people who agreed to a placard. All right. This is the key of the whole experiment. They went to the people who agreed without, without knowing about the billboard. And they asked for a billboard and a certain percentage of them agreed because they already said yes to the placard. And that's what commitment and consistency is. So when you're in the process of, you know, someone raises their hand, I want to do podcasts, then you've got to get what is, you got to get right down to the nitty gritty because it is hard work. It's, it takes a lot of commitment to do it. And it's, the reward is really, 
all about completion as opposed to very few. It's, it's like artists in the music world. Very few people make a ton of money. Taylor Swift is making bolos of money. Uh, she's one of what? 10,000 maybe that does that? I would say yeah. one in 100,000. Yeah. And the same thing with, I mean, how many Joe Rogans are out there? But yeah, but you're ethically influencing people and ensuring that they make the right decision. And the only way to do that is to make sure that there's a certain level of commitment and consistency because they will flame out in two or three months if they're not, if they don't understand that. I have to get material every month to do my podcast. I got to make a 12 month commitment to do it. Those are things that can come up. For the right reasons, people I have learned, and this is something that has come to me over time, that people have to feel called to do a specific thing if they're going to succeed at it. And I wrote, actually wrote about it in this email, this morning's email, here on the 27th of July. It was, unless you feel like this is your purpose, this is giving you a sense of purpose in your life, you're not going to succeed at it. It, it has to do, it has to really touch you as an individual in a very deep and profound way. And if it doesn't do that, you're not going to help anybody. You're not going to speak to anybody in any meaningful way. It has to speak to you first and foremost. All right. We have skipped the second one, likability. And I think we can, we all know what that means. We know what honey draws more flies than poison or whatever that saying is. So we, I think we can skip likability and feel confident that we understand it. But this word reciprocation, I think is interesting. And I would like to get your thoughts on this because I have an idea of what it means, but I want to. I just want to hear what you have to say about this word reciprocation. All right. So re reciprocation, the law of reciprocation is really a big one. And I'll give you an old school example of the law of reciprocation in action. And then we can discuss how it can be used in, for somebody that's in the persuasion field today. So I don't, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Hari Kirshnas. They were very big. Uh, group for a long time, not so much today, but they were for a long time in the 70s and 80s. If you were in an airport, the Hare Krishnas would be outside and they would be handing out flowers to people. And their goal was to say, peace be with you, peace to you, etc. And what what people, if you're a human being and you're hurried and you're moving your body through an airport and you come across these people that are you know, in robes, if you will, and they're handing out flowers, you don't want, you do not want to give to take the flower because it induces the law of reciprocation. Whether you and I like it or not, it induces the law of reciprocation. It's like where the word much obliged comes from. Much obliged is it's obligation. Obliged, the word obliged is obligation. And you've just made me obligated. Whenever a human being does something for somebody else, as human beings, as social creatures, we have this feeling that we have to reciprocate. Now, not 100%. There's some people out there that have no problem. If you're at a bar and you buy them a beer, they're not going to buy you a beer back because that's their, that's who they are, whether it's because of their finances or what. But 99% of people will do that. They will. So anyone that's in the process of selling, they're going to have some kind of reciprocation model. Now, what did the Harvey Kirshens do? They were looking to get donations for their church. And so people would do that. You give me a flower, I'll give you a buck. Or they used to also give out prayer cards also, not just flowers, but prayer cards. 
in that. So that's a prime example of inducing reciprocation from people when they don't want to be, they don't want to be in that place. Okay. How about a good use of reciprocation? All right. If you're, if you are a person that like I was selling sales training, right? So I would, going back to the manager example, going in and giving a one hour of value program that goes over certain things that can help enhance somebody's job as a sales rep, that is a value. And it's a giveaway. It's a gift in a sense, with the intention that they may reciprocate and say, you know what? I want to take this guy's whole course because I like this what this guy's done for me. So it induces some level of reciprocation. That's why you'll see people do lost leaders all the time. People at trade shows, they'll I don't know what kind of trade shows you attend. Let's talk about the home shows. They always have the yardsticks, the competence. And you go by, you get a car, you pick it up and you go, and you get a chance to chat with the person. Now you're, if I give you my yardstick, you're going to give me five minutes of your time, you know, and that's the law of reciprocation. And then there's, there are those people, maybe these little old ladies that run around and grab everything, they grab everything at the home show and they don't, but that's, is always going to be the, the the exception. And those aren't the types of people that they're looking to sell to anyway. They're just correct. They just take it because it's there and it's lost leaders. It yeah. is what it, it is what it is. Related to digital media or digital marketing, online marketing is what I'm getting at. That's why you see you go to a website, for example, and you say, enter my enter your email address for this free report. Or a musician might say, download my latest single, for, just speaking very general terms, download this, enter your email address, and I'll send it to you. And then you're giving something of value in exchange for that very valuable email address, which if used correctly, wisely, ethically, can mean thousands of dollars down the road. All the plug-in companies do it all day long. Not that everybody has, everyone's doing their own thing recording-wise. You get it on a plug-in company's email list, they give you a free plug-in, and then three, six months down the road, all of a sudden, hey, we're having a 50% sale, blah, 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 and you can get these 10 plugins, and you're like, oh, man, and then people get plug-in crazy. And that's why you have all of these uh, software services. The ones that I use, some of the ones that I use are 11 Labs, AI, Voice Generator, Auphonic for mastering audio, Descript for transcribing audio. They, every single one of them has a, quote, free plan. You, they'll give you a certain amount of hours per month for free, and you can use it and use all the benefits, all the bells and whistles, and if that's all you need, that's great. Some of these social media schedulers, they'll just say, you can use our service for free, and then they're going to sell you their service. They're always going to be pitching. But that's an example of reciprocation sure. that we see mm-hmm. regularly in our day-to-day lives shopping online. Social proof, that is like testimonials on your website, or is it more than that? It's definitely that. Tough testimonials are definitely a huge piece of that. If you're looking for social proof about your skill set, about your service, your product, you need testimonials and you need them all the time. And there's two reasons. One is because they're powerful for somebody that's checking into you. And they also serve as, man, I'm really doing a good job. And that keeps you going. If you're getting, if you're getting 
continuously getting feedback from your customers that you're doing a good job, that elevates your psyche, that elevates your ability to get better at what you do. And I, to this day, I've got a folder from my Robbins days, and it was a 10-year career with Tony. It was 90 to 2000 approximately. And I've got a folder of cards, thank you cards, letters from people. This I barely remember what some of these people probably look like because in those days, we didn't have, everyone wasn't taking cane. We all didn't have a camera in our pocket and taking pictures at the end of a class like we like people do it all day long today. But yeah, but I, you go back to that, you go, wow, I really did make an impact for some people. And you're happy with yourself. And that's powerful. That's real powerful. But social proof, like globally, is when a certain amount of people, it's kind of like the hundredth monkey principle, if you're familiar with that. Well, the hundredth monkey principle, and it's probably not true, but it serves as a really cool thing. And they talk about two islands, and on the islands, there were monkeys. And the monkeys on one island used to eat the coconuts one certain way. And they would go down to the water and they would wash the coconuts and they would crack the coconuts open. And apparently, they, it's a learned thing, but they're on different islands. So monkeys don't swim across an island. But the story, you look it up and you can get a real good detail of it. But the basic story is that once a certain amount of monkeys were doing the same behavior, it happened all over the place. And that's, I'm using that as an example of social proof. Once an idea becomes mainstream, so to speak, then more and more people. All right. When is a conspiracy theory no longer a conspiracy theory, James? When it's finally proven it's a conspiracy. <laughs> and then how does that happen when more people finally realize that, oh, my God, that really did happen. So what's going on with this whole thing with the aliens or whatever this hearing yesterday like so i guess we're all accepting that aliens are, do exist now i don't know i haven't really followed it that closely but yes social proof is when a certain amount you reach a threshold and then an idea or a concept or a product becomes hey remember amazon they were a bookstore and bezos was leaking money left and right and only a few people were really into books. I was, I've been a member since 1999 with Amazon. They were nowhere near what they are today. But they, it's an idea that found its place in time. And there were other things that I was involved with, with a personal development company that was beaming programs through C-band satellite. And they were trying to get hooked up with DirecTV and PrimeStar. And, but what happened? Not only did the internet come, but the internet 2.0 broadband came and speeds of up to 1,000 gigs came. And people don't even really need a dish anymore. And now you and I are having a conversation on Zoom like we're, in, like we're in the same room. But that company was ahead of its time and they didn't make it because they were in the mid-90s and it just didn't work out. And now all of those people that they wanted to be on their training program, the Brian Tracy's and uh, as Jim Rohn passed on, but those people, you can just go to YouTube and watch them for hours for free now because oh, there's so many vignettes that are up and available in that. So, yeah, it's when an idea meets its time. In, in our case, it's got to do what well, it'll be interesting to watch the, the RFK Jr. campaign. He's from Massachusetts. He's part of the Kennedy clan and the Kennedys are big up here. And 
I grew up in a family that wasn't big on the Kennedys and we weren't fans of the senator when he was the senator for a lot of reasons. But the bottom line is that he's gaining some level of momentum and he's striking. It's very interesting to watch. If you're if you're a person, a political junkie, it'd be very interesting to watch what happens with him. Will he reach a social proof level where people will say, oh, this is the guy for the Democrat primary. This is the guy. I don't know. I'm just watching. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Social right. proof. Speaking of politics, let's go to scarcity because that seems to be politicians. They, I guess they're a scarce breed in and of themselves. But when you get, especially, it seems like the higher you go in the political spectrum, the less scarce the messages are. It seems like it doesn't matter what party you're from. It's going to be essentially the same message. So let's talk a little bit about scarcity. And I think some of my trumpet playing friends can relate to this because trumpet players are it's among the most popular instruments that you can choose from. Probably, it's probably behind the guitar, but it's definitely above the bassoon, above the a number of instruments that a child can choose if they're learning an instrument. But it's also very versatile. You can play a trumpet in jazz. You can play it in bebop, play it in classical. You can play it in anything, any type of setting. It's not unusual. Salsa, it's very common. So a big challenge for trumpet players is to establish their niche. Where, do I, where am I going to specialize? And we hear often, you got to diversify. You've got to master several genres or several styles. And I understand that, but I also think that there's a lot of value in being the best at one particular thing. Like you could be the best trumpet player that specializes in this very hyper niche, specific niche, but for which there is a demand. And I, honestly, I can't think of anything at the moment, but what I'm saying is that there is always a, there, there is a demand for very specific skills. And if you are the person that is known as the expert in that one micro niche, that one skill, you're the person that is going to go to, that people are going to call. And so that is scarcity in action. And this is my take on it. And I'd like to get your thoughts on it. But you also have that social proof, the commitment. You have to be committed to being the best at this skill that no one has ever heard of, but people need somehow. So g give me your thoughts on scarcity and then we'll wrap things up. That's a real strong piece there. The scarcity of a, but it's like certain doctors, certain surgeons, they have a certain skill and they're never going to be out of work. The law of scarcity in the terms of selling is typically, there's only a certain amount of this product and it'll go away. Or there's only one of these Van Gogh's, right? It's the law of scarcity. And so, yeah, when you talk about a skill set, it's definitely, it's scarcity is totally totally in alignment with the, with the law as it's written in the book. But in terms of sales, it, it really covers try to make a product or I will throw in certain thing that you can't get anywhere else if you purchase my product now. And that's what, it's going to be ethical though, because if people say, if you come back six months later and say, I'm offering this thing that I never offered before, but you offered it six months ago, people are going to catch wind of it and that. But 
Yeah, for sure. It, the skill, when it comes to certain skills, yeah. I didn't know there were that many trumpet players. I thought trumpet players were scarce anyways because it's they it just seems to me like it's a niche it's a niche it's a niche it, thing. It is, but if you go to the local music conservatory, it's a totally different world. Uh-huh. If you go let's let's say you go to Eastman School of Music. I'm just going to throw that name out there cuz it's pretty well known. Like in the city of Rochester, New York, the trumpet at a very like an elite level is very rare just within that large city of Rochester. But if you step inside that music building, you're not so special anymore. Like you have the alpha who's the leader of the pack and then you've got everybody else who is there. They play exceptionally well. They're young people and they play like they're young people, but they're really good for their age. But they're not special. Same thing in your local symphony orchestra. If, I don't know how it is where you live, but here in Norfolk, Virginia, if you play for the symphony, you are a big deal. Yeah. Especially well, among musicians. Even if you're just a sub for a pops concert, you can put on your resume, I played for the symphony. But then when you get into the rehearsal with the symphony, you're nobody special. You're just right. the guy that's just sitting in for somebody who's sick. So it's, it, I think that it just applies to in so many different ways in different settings in life. I agree. That was very nice. And then let's touch, we're running a bit short on time. Let's just touch briefly on unity. I think a better way to, to that I would define it based on your definition is rapport. Community. Yeah, people have, sorry, unity is, sometimes it's really of a locale more than anything because people have a tendency, like you and I are on the East Coast, okay? I'm up in Massachusetts and you're in Virginia, right? Yeah, we're on the East Coast, but come on, you're in the South and I'm in the North. So this, we could say that there's unity there because we're on the East Coast, but we're also both musicians and you do the trumpet thing and I'm a singer, songwriter, guitar player, and I mess around with my own music and I enjoy it. It's something I do as, as an amateur. I consider myself a good amateur, but it's something that I do for myself. And so we have that camaraderie, like you mentioned earlier, we have that level of familiarity. Unity right now, how it's like really, let's talk like the MAGA world is a unity thing. These are people all bounded by a certain, by a particular slogan, make America great again. So those people are united and they all consume the same information. And when they get together, they're chatting, all the same topics come up. And then there's another group of people that are on the exact opposite side of that. And they consume a certain type of media and they and they have a completely different story. And, and that's where we have two groups that, you know, it's absurd it, when you think about it, because human beings are now making decisions based on that, and families are being split up based on that, instead of people trying to come. I wrote a song called People Pushing, and I use it like people pushing, like losing the G, kind of like a slang. And it's people pushing, people shoving, people getting in each other's way. It's like people aren't really listening to each other anymore. They're just jockeying for position. And they're on Twitter throwing shade. And I use, the, I use that shade as the rhyme word. And it's why can't people just say, listen, what do we really want to accomplish in this country? You have a child, you have a young son. I have a grandson. I have a mature daughter, my wife. You have your wife. Well, all we want to do is live a healthy life and help each other out. But people are crazy, man. It's bizarre. 
So that's why I'm in the influence field. And I wanted to share one more thing with you. Robert, Robert is he's passing the torch. He actually made a person the CEO of his company. The gentleman's name is Bass, B-A-S, Waters. He's from the Netherlands. Very interesting person. But he just came out with this a couple of years ago. And this is all the all the laws of influence okay. apply to online. It's called online influence. Yeah, boost your results with proven behavioral science. And that's a real, really good for people that, you know, are doing the kind of work that you're doing, being how to build a website that really is influential in that. I wanted to definitely leave that with you. You have an opportunity. His name is Bass Waters? W-O-U-T-E. Yeah, W-O-U-T-E-R-S. Yeah, I know. It's not Waters. Like, I might be, it might be Waters, but he's a guy from the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that is funny. Bass Waters. He's a cool guy, really cool guy. And uh, but he's taking taking the torch from Robert. Robert's in his mid to late seventies, and I think he's kind of like doing his swan song. But his institute he wants to keep his institute up and running. Good man, this is good stuff. I didn't know where we were gonna where the winds of dialogue would take us in this conversation, but I'm glad that you reached out in response to that email. And I'm gonna just gonna give myself one more shameless plug because it's my show. It's JamesDNewcomb.com to subscribe to my email list. Mike, do you have a website or some something where we can check you out online? Yeah, the only thing I'm really on is LinkedIn at this time. Uh, I'm the coach Mike Howard on LinkedIn, and people can learn about me there and what I'm doing. That's pretty easy to spell, Mike Howard. Go on. Yeah, co- yeah, Coach Mike oh, Howard. Coach I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm glad this worked out, man. Same here. It was very enjoyable, James. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard, 